Welcome, welcome or welcome back uh, to SNED. If you're new, please sign up on the, uh, the sign-in sheet and we'll tell you all about upcoming talks. We meet every, every ish. Thursday at this time, the next talk, which is also the last talk for this season, this, this term, is coming up with Joan Kuliak, who is a mining rights activist who worked for Mining Watch for many years. She has written a book, the title of which I don't have in front of me, but it's about resisting mining in your community. She's here in town, she's in Ottawa. She's coming to town next week to do a book launch at Novel Idea, and we get to hear her uh, before the book launch. So please, uh, please come up to that as well. Please help me in welcoming Professor Beverly Mullings, who is well-known, well-loved, well-respected here at Queen's. We found ourselves last year, last year, at a conference, a Caribbean Studies conference at the University of Havana, and I went to her talk on, um, on uh, Caribbean diaspora issues, and I thought, not for the first time, why do I have to go all the way to another country to hear the word, not that I'm complaining, but to hear the work of my colleagues at Queen's, and that's one of the many things that's great about SNID, that we, so we've been bugging her ever since to, to please uh, talk about her work here, and I'm really glad there's so many of us here to listen. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank so first of all, I, I need to apologize for the late start. <laughs> never start with a new machine that you've never used before, which is what I was doing. It doesn't transmit well. But also to say thank you to Karen, to Scott, and to Shannon, because SNID is one of my favorite spaces. And having run SNID with Karen some years back, I've enjoyed every minute of the conversation. The fact that you can actually come to this room with half-baked ideas, some of these will be, and to have feedback and conversation. So I'm hoping really to get as much feedback as possible. This is one aspect of a much longer project that I've been working with for some time, trying to make sense of um, diaspora strategies, why they've emerged, how they incorporate particular populations, and what I want to talk about today is the way in which they're increasingly becoming financialized and securitized. So that's sort of what I'll be talking about. I know I have too many slides already, so I'm just going to be going quickly through, or I may skip over some, please forgive, but I am hoping we can have a really interesting conversation about a really interesting phenomena. So in about April 2019, um, the World Bank published a report and it seemed to have set off an aha moment for at least financial markets. And in that report, they recognize it for the very first time that remittance flows from the global south uh, um, directed to lower and middle income countries had was more than foreign direct investment. This is a first. At the end of this year, this type of flow will now be greater than foreign direct investment flows. We've known it for some time that um, remittances were more than overseas development aid, but this is a slightly different story. And it has unleashed a whole series of players who are interested in trying to capture some of those flows as they move across um, markets. So that's what I really want to talk about. What are the consequences and what should we think about this newfound um, gold, as some people call it, in remittances? So um, the report of the World Bank said that uh, investment flows through uh, remittance flows were as much as $574 billion. That's a lot of money. So as I said, it comes as no surprise that suddenly 
everyone's got an interest in these particular flows. And by remittances, what I mean for those of you who may not actually know what that term is, I'm talking about, it's commonly understood as um, the private transfer of funds from a person in one country to someone in another country in payment for a good or a service or a gift or a donation. Most commonly and most popularly, remittances are understood as the sorts of recurrent, faithful flows of capital that people send who are migrants in one country to family, friends, and community abroad. So remittances are kind of like the, the human face of global capital, um, emanating from emigre workers who are sending money to families at home or back home. So what I want to do in this talk is to talk a little bit about trying to understand a set of emerging impulses behind um, a regulatory infrastructure that is beginning to be formed aimed at financializing and securing and securitizing remittances. <coughs> and I want to map the ways, if I can, um, that financial the financialization of remittances is producing new forms of coloniality. That's going to be my argument, imperial control and ultimately abandonment. And I'm going to do that by looking at what's happening in the Caribbean and its diaspora. Um, I'm going to try and do this through three vignettes or manifestations of what I see to be the um, financialization of resources. One, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the way that um, the Jamaican government unsuccessfully tried to launch a diaspora bond, which is a debt security that would be attached to or created through um, diaspora resources. I'm going to talk about uh, 2017, very unsuccessful, thankfully, um, attempt, a bill that was brought to the US Congress to impose a 2% tax on all remittance flows the proceeds of which would have gone towards building that wall on the U.S.-Mexico border and included all of Latin American countries and Caribbean ones, save Trinidad and Tobago. And I have no idea why they were exempted from this as well. And then third, I'm going to look at the practice of debanking. It's something that's quite new. It's quite alarming, but it is a process by which correspondent banks, and I will explain what they are later, are increasingly relinquishing their relationship with Caribbean states, refusing to be the sort of in-between bank to process um, monies. And that's probably one of the most um, frightening <laughs> of the developments. So I have an argument, and my argument is this. Attempts to integrate migrant remittances into financial markets are drawing heavily on free market discourses that promote efficiency and productivity, as well as liberal concepts of inclusion. So if you look at any written document, much of the conversation about financializing remittances hangs on the idea of um, bringing the unbanked or those who never had inclusion in the global economy to be finally included in financial markets. But my argument will be that these discourses are kind of problematic they tend to do a couple of things. They tend to devalue the social reproductive importance of remittances. They pay very little attention to the types of autonomy and forms of independence that remittances um, make, makes possible at a variety of scales. And they tend to obscure the way that financialization is linked to securitization and the concerns over questions of global um, governance. So my other 
last bit of the argument then is that these discourses of inclusion and, and productivity obscure a set of deeply embedded racialized colonial logics that are relying on uncertainty, on debt, and on abandonment to appropriate and control diaspora populations and the places where they maintain ties. And to just give you a sense of these figures in graphic form, gosh, that's not the clearest, but anyway, I'm hoping you can see it well enough, that this comes from the World Bank report, where if you look at these, these um, flows, the one at the very bottom here is overseas development assistance, and we've known for a long time that states are no longer spending monies, even though they are sort of signatories to things that say they'll spend a certain amount of GDP in overseas development aid. For the most part, most countries don't do that. So that line at the bottom, overseas development aid, is quite flat. Um, this is foreign direct investment, so this is the bit that's triggered all the excitement, that there's a possibility that really remittances will outshine foreign direct investment in the future, and that hereon are private capital flows that um, institutions, financial ones in particular, but also country governments can make use of. If we were to think about um, remittance flows, however, me talking about the Caribbean is only a tiny, tiny drop in that ocean. Because if you look at these figures, really the big players in terms of countries that remit, so on the left-hand side, what you can see are the top 10 countries that send money back home. And not too surprising that it includes India, China, and Mexico. These are big economies with large populations. But, but if the left-hand side is what most potential hedge fund managers and um, uh, private intermediaries and banks get really excited about, the right-hand side of that, um, this bar chart tells you the top 10 recipients of financial flows through remittances and what it tells you is that there's a real human face there is something else that remittances offer and that is livelihoods particularly for places that are war-torn that are impoverished that are open and vulnerable in terms of economic crisis in crises in the global economy so when you look at this you know um, the island state of Tonga is the world's highest recipient in terms of a percentage of their GDP of remittance flows followed by um, a number of other countries. Haiti is the only country in the Caribbean that actually makes that top 10 list. But it gives you two sides of that conversation about what remittances can do. And I want to really stress on the fact that I think in the gold rush towards remittances Many, much of what I will show you is, is an obliteration and erasure of just the human face of global remittances. So I bring you these statistics again from the World Bank and some from the UN to just give you a sense that one in nine people today, they're recipients of money sent by family members usually in the form of remittances. One in nine. That those remittances account for at least 60% of the incomes of those households, often sent regularly, like probably every month or every other month, sent in tranches of about 200 US dollars to at, mo at, at most about 300 US dollars. So you're beginning to see how small these amounts are, or well, it's relatively speaking for some people that's really big, but, but these are not thousands of dollars at one time, but they're small, they're regular, and they're what some 
um, people writing about remittances called faithful. They happen. They happen whether there's a recession, they happen, they bounce back, out, that many of the remittance flows bounced back after the 2008 recession, even though remitters, many of them were downgraded, lost their jobs, etc. the remittances still continue to flow. And it is that magic of remittances, their faithfulness, that actually financial markets find most intriguing and interesting. And those remittances, what do they go towards? They go towards paying for food, they go towards clothing, shelter, investments in human capital. Um, anyone that um, has ever been to m any part of the global south knows that when you see the billboards for Western Union money transfer or MoneyGram, much of it is about what you can send to pay for education, school fees, etc. So, um, so that photo is one of mine, because if you were to go through the airport in Kingston, Jamaica, you'd hit this just before you got to your departure gate. And it's telling you really that it gives you a sense of how much um, remittances figure in the lives of people leaving the country and coming into the country. And so this is just um, a picture. It's, it's on the wall as you're entering to tell you that you can actually send barrels. And this is a very traditional way in which people maintain, at least in Jamaica, connections with people abroad. They literally send material goods in um, cash as well as material goods. And in this case, this company is one that remits or sends um, goods if you want to send them to Jamaica. So I want to take you to thinking a little bit about Jamaica itself. Um, estimated at about 3.4 billion dollars, the Caribbean really stands out among remittance economies because of the size of the remittance inflows relative to other sources of external income such as exports, overseas development aid or um, FDIs, foreign direct investments. So if you look at these graphs, again, it accounts for as much as, so if you look at this graph, this is Latin America and the Caribbean, Mexico of course stands out. It's just one of the large global players. But you begin to see that the Caribbean really, in, even in relation to Latin America, is a small player in terms of the volume of remittances, but that those remittances mean so very much to um, lives and livelihoods. So you know, when you break it down and you're not looking at the global figures, but you're just looking at Latin America and the Caribbean, then you can see countries like um, Haiti, Jamaica, Guyana, and more recently, Dominica, and that's because of the devastation of the hurricane, Hurricane Maria, that people began to send even more money home. And if you were to break that down even more, to just look only at CARICOM countries, then you begin to see who the big players are. And you, you really have a sense of how tiny, you can almost not see them on the graph, that those flows are. Yet still they're so vital to lives and livelihoods in, in the region. Um, if I were to tell you more about Caribbean remittances, what you would see is that at least, and this is based on an older study, these studies are not updated that regularly, but 48% of people send money to family and friends. This was an InfoDev study done in 2014. 32% of people in the Caribbean send money to charities, usually hospitals, community centers, but they're usually collective items or communal items. And then there was another study done by Elizabeth Thomas Hope and some others that found that 68% of Jamaicans actually send money to churches. And that is the way in which um, resource get, resources get redistributed, and that 
at least or more than 85% of people actually invest in land. And often when it says real estate, it really is either purchasing land for which the, there is a hope that they may return. So you purchase land and then maybe if you do return, you, you build on it. And when you look at where those remittances come from, and this is going to be important later on in the talk, really the United States is the largest entity. That's the largest remittance um, sending country that migrants remit largely from the US, the UK, and that is largely because of the dominance of the Anglophone Caribbean, um, Canada, Spain, and France. So having made the case for the importance to social reproduction of remittances, what is sh a sharp, is very sharp and noticeable in the literature is the way in which it is routinely remittances discussed as unproductive that these are un this is an unproductive use of assets that could be used otherwise in productive form. And I think the Financial Times kind of sums it up in their own um, article where they say, in contrast to FDI, which can boost the capital stock and promote productivity gains, remittance spending is heavily skewed towards consumption as if that was some terrible thing. Financial support from abroad can also reduce the motivation to work. Right? And you begin to see a sort of discourse of nativity and laziness that, you know, you get these remittances, you don't want to work anymore. Um, it will delay incentives for recalcitrant governments to, to effect necessary reforms. So this is the IMF and World Bank, all of those reforms. You might just not carry them out in the way that you were told if you are a recipient rem of remittances and through um, and it weakens competition through higher prices and exchange rate appreciation. So this is just, you know, the recent September 3rd uh, Financial Times article, which was followed up with another discussion about why, why it is that we need to tap into and harness and make use of those resources to restore them to more productive and investment use. And much of those uses are not about building factories or schools, it's about becoming financially engaged in the financial economy. Now for those of you who are sitting there going, okay, so what does she actually mean <laughs> by the financial economy, then um, this is a sort of working definition that I've got. That when we think about financialization, we're really talking about a pattern of capital accumulation that in which profit make making occurs increasingly through financial channels rather than through trade or commodity production. And that is really the definition used by Greta Krittner, who is one of the earliest persons to actually notice that we're moving to a different type of capital accumulation on a global scale, one that relies primarily on financialized flows. Um, other people also use another definition. So Epstein uses the definition of financialization as one in which financial markets, financial motives, um, financial institutions, and financial elites increasingly become the driving force in wealth creation. And they increasingly outstrip commodity, financialization increasingly outstrips commodity production, and ultimately it inverts the relationship between the financial economy and the real economy. And I've just finished coming from a class um, a 200 level class where we've watched the inside job talking about the you know, global financial meltdown in the United States and the way in which that was underpinned 
by um, speculative capital that reigned over productive capital, things that would be invested in bricks and mortar forms, older forms of manufacturing, etc. Much of the literature, if you look at financialization, literature f really focuses on the United States primarily, and maybe that's because it was the epicenter of the 2008 financial crisis. Very few studies actually look outside of the Euro-American zone. There are very few studies, and that's why it's important, I think, to really get a grip on what's going on in terms of the way that remittances have joined other types of capital flows to become financialized and to be hailed by financial markets. So some of the factors behind financialization, there are a number of things that have made financi the financial market a leading sector in the way that all forms of life are valued and, and brought into markets. One is the lifting of controls on interest rates and capital flows. Most people might know that in terms of some forms of legislation in the United States, for example, the lifting of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1999, which was an act that created regulatory frameworks so that commercial banks would not do the work of investment banks. When that regulation was removed, commercial banks and, and investment banks became blurred, which opened the door for sorts of some forms of speculative investments that increasingly are coming to dominate what financial institutions do, but using the, the resources or the savings of individuals. So it's a, that was a moment of lifting some of the restrictions that said that if you were an ordinary household investor, you wouldn't suddenly find that your savings was part of a you know, um, debt instrument that was used to finance housing in another country, which is really the story of the 2007 financial crisis. Also has been the growing reliance on non-financial institutions on bond and equity markets. And they, their growing reliance on using stock markets to finance investments. So many of us sitting in this room, especially if you're Queen's faculty, we're kind of caught up in that too because increasingly our own retirement savings are being invested in the financial markets in ways that we can't possibly know. Or we would like to know, but we really don't. Um, and that, that's also the case for individual households. The number of households who find that their savings are caught up in mutual funds and other types of, of instruments, which often you really don't know if you've taken out a, a mutual fund exactly where your money has gone. You know that you've got one. You know that there's some safety ratings but where exactly it is invested is not always very clear. And all of this, some scholars argue, has led to the rise of a class, and that class some people call the 1%, who increasingly hold property through financial assets and have become very rich. So um, why should we be concerned about financial markets? There are a couple of reasons why. One is a general lack of information. Many of us don't really know exactly where our, our assets are held. There has been a tendency for um, financial markets to actually erode some of the sort of level of trust that we used to have between investors and clients. So, and, and I, th I think if you were to look at 
what had happened in the United States in 2007, there was a clear erosion of trust where even assets that were considered to be poor assets by financial investors, that information was never passed on to those whose capital they held. Um, and there is a tendency then, when we think about why we should be concerned, I, I think it's eloquently stated by Servus Storm, who argues that the shift in financial intermediation from banks to financial markets, the introduction of a financial market logic into areas and domains where it previously was absent, they've not only just had a negative development impact, but they've also changed the rules of the game and facilitated rent-seeking practices of a really small and growing self-serving elites. What I want to do, having explained really where the idea of financialization comes from and why we should be concerned, because one of the things I think financialization has been accompanied by are deepening patterns of uneven development, and that I'm going to try and show as I speak about what's going on in the Caribbean, is now I want to just talk about remittances. Why are they of such interest to financial markets? Yes, there's a lot of unbanked people, there's a lot of money moving around the globe, but let's try and figure out in more detail exactly what it is that financial markets offer, uh, remittances offer to financial markets. So, if you look at any of these names, these are just money transfer operators. I've only got a smidgen of them. There are many of them. These are actually some of those that work largely in Latin America and the Caribbean, but they're very regional. Different countries have different ones. Um, there, if in the old days, if you were trying to send money across an international border, you probably would have used a bank. And it was expensive. It actually still is very expensive. And so if you think about it, for so many years as the remittance economies grew, banks really did benefit from those flows of capital. And if you were to use a bank, you probably would have wired the money, it, meaning that you were part of an international network. So I don't know if anyone's done much of that sort of transferring of capital, but you often have to put your SWIFT code in. Well, that was just to show that you were part of this networked group, um, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, and that would have given you the costs that you would be paying. So commercial banks, some people do it, but they're inordinately high, their, their fees. Their fees can be as high as $50 to 15 US dollars, depending on the amounts of money. And as I said, remittance flows are quite small. Incidentally, the highest remittance corridors in, in terms of cost come from Canadian banks. They're the highest ones. <laughs> U.S. banks aren't as high, other banks in other countries, I'm not really sure why that, at least I do have a theory about why that might be, and I'll share it in a minute. But the fees are high, and it can be higher if there isn't a correspondent bank. So if you're sending it to a part of the world where there isn't a royal bank in that country, you have to work with an intermediate bank, a correspondent bank, and that's extra charges on what you've sent. It takes a long time, it can take two to three days before that money gets to where it's supposed to go. And, and whoever crucially receives it has to have a bank account. And that will come back when we talk about securitization. So these markets have become very popular. Most people use them. They don't necessarily use banks. They use digital money, money transfers. And so the Western Union money transfer, MoneyGram, TransferWise, 
there's so many of them. This one, Zoom's owned by PayPal. You know, these, are, these have been the ways in which people have been remitting money from one place to the next. But it's still expensive. That the average remittance cost, if you use a digital money transfer, is about 7.5%. So even the UN is trying to see whether they can actually reduce these. So, so reducing remittance costs has actually become part of the Sustainable Development Goals. It's part of Goal 10 to try and get it down to 3%. And, but digital money transfers, which is what most people use, normally you get your money on the same day. Um, at most, it, it, sometimes it can be um, instantaneous. And the fees are lower. They're lower than the fees of commercial banks. But the bit that has got everyone excited, or at least if you're a finance fintech company, you'd be excited by the World Bank document that that told us just the value of remittances are cryptocurrencies. So there's a whole series of cryptocurrency transfer companies that are trying to use cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin to be able to see whether they can tap in to some of that money as it moves across the borders. And they feel that they can actually reduce the cost of those um, transfers that they can get them below 3%. In actual fact, the reality is if you're a Bitcoin user, there is no transaction cost. But for companies that are interested, they, they feel they can make that. And, and it's an attractive option for some people because you don't have to have a bank account. And in actual fact, most of these transfers as they emerge uh, in a cryptocurrency market, you don't actually know who the person is who's sending the money. It is an anonymous movement of capital. You can, you can find out what the, the volumes are because it's a ledger system, but you don't actually have names. So you can imagine how or why it is that cryptocurrency transfers really has begun to shape the foundation of fear for certain companies. So remittances, yeah, it's, it's profitable for the financial sector because of the capacity to capture um, uh, transaction fees. That's the main, main way in which money can be made. And of course, we now know that there's 1.7 billion people in the world that don't have a bank account. So if you can get them to use um, any of these uh, global remitting companies, the argument has been for most companies, there's windfall profits. Now, I think we need to really ask some questions about that because on the one hand, yes, there are 1.7 million people that don't have bank accounts. But I think it is highly problematic when we understand them largely as the unbanked that can be brought into financial markets to the extent that their inclusion also brings them into relationships of debt. Because once you've got those cards, once you've got you, you connected through the financial system, the possibilities are endless. So if you look at the, the one point seven billion on banked and you look at where they're located more than half of them are accounted for by just um, seven countries and that includes not surprisingly China and India but also Indonesia which is a little surprising Mexico Nigeria Pakistan there is no Caribbean I don't think there's a market there's no interest in trying to get Caribbean people to become banked and the truth is most Caribbean people are banked and I will explain why because of the very long history of Bank, banks and, um, and a reliance on commercial banks, larger Canadian banks, historically throughout the region. And of course, many of you might have listened to the news recently, I don't know, 
to realize that Mark Zuckerberg is entering this market. So this is what Facebook hopes to do, that it hopes to capture through its own currency, cryptocurrency Libra. The whole of that currency experiment is about capturing these new people. It's largely, and he's quite open, is to capture some of that remittance capital. And as the Bloomberg says, when Facebook launches its new cryptocurrency as a first step into financial services, this social media behemoth will have an advantage that its rivals could only dream of. 2.4 billion sets of eyeballs. All of the people who use Facebook being sort of brought into these markets um, and so as the Bloomberg ad says, Libra needs Facebook users to help break into the 714 billion payments market. So you can begin to see why the financial sector has become very interested. I don't think this works for the Caribbean. We're just, you know, it's a region that's small peanuts. But it is a coming sort of stampede, <laughs> I would call it, for capturing that 1.7 million unbanked. And all of the literature, if you look at it, is, is um, discussed in the language of inclusion. The developmental benefits that come from being included in financial markets, the ability to have access to credit, the ability to not have to pay high fees if you're using a cryptocurrency. This is the way in which much of that um, is discussed. Another way in which financial markets have become really interested in um, remittances is through the creation of debt securities, meaning that um, there are increasingly financial instruments in the form of bonds that are being issued by usually country governments to, to exchange some of their debt for remittances. Now, I call this a war on remittances. I do it specifically to be able to point to the way in which that competition for remittances is, can be exclusionary. And I, when I say that, it's not just about financiers on Wall Street. I am also talking about country governments who see their diaspora population as pools of gold, assets that they can actually tap into and utilize with, with a set of assumptions around what the relationship between diaspora members and the countries for which they have ties should be. So I just want to talk a little bit about what these things are. Um, nearly every country, if you look online across the world, they're being advised largely by the World Bank to think about ways in which they can connect to di their diasporic populations, and this is through the bond. The diaspora bond, it's a long-dated security. It takes a while before you get it paid back. Um, the bond issues are usually at a lower interest rate than they would be on any other financial market. And that's because most international financiers would not be interested in those countries. Their credit ratings are too low. So, so the interest that would be offered on a bond issue by the government to a diaspora member is always going to be lower than what that diaspora member might have been able to command in another type of bond market. So that's, that's number one. And you might be asking, well, why would you do that? <laughs> why would you take out a bond if you know that the interest is going to be so, so low? And that's partly because there is an assumption. The assumption is that diaspora members would be willing to actually get lower rates of interest because there is something that Dilip Ratha calls the patriotic discount, that you feel such a close relationship to the place from which you left that you'd be willing to, when you get 
your bond repaid is at a lower interest rate than if you had put that money somewhere else. That, in actual fact, if you got your money repaid, it might be repaid in the local currency, not in the currency that you actually invested in. And in countries where there are forms of regular devaluation, Jamaica is one. That's a, that's a big... Oh, it's okay, Malik. I'm saying the truth. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but, you know, in a place where there are regular currency devaluations, that's a huge risk. But these bonds have become very popular, that um, the World Bank advisors are out there for largely African countries as a target, but Caribbean ones as well, that they need to try to create these new um, types of bonds. And I want to point out that one of the interesting things about the diaspora bond is that it's emerging at a period where financial capital is expanding, where we are being encouraged to be, you know, sort of rational market actors Yet still we have a bond issue that the only way that you would buy it is if you're not a rational market, you know, um, actor. So it's an interesting way in which there's a logic around what diaspora members should do and what they will do on the part of governments, but also on the part of lenders like the World Bank and IMF that have been actually the champions behind these issues. And I think, I love reading The Economist because they just tell it like it is. So if you read, the, if you read their own um, statement, it sort of says the idea is simple. Poor country governments can issue bonds and market them to immigrants in rich countries. There are several advantages to milking, and there is constantly an extractive language that's used, milking members of a diaspora. They are often patriotic. They like the idea that their savings will pay for bridges and clinics at home. They're patient, since they have a long-term tie to the issuer, and some of these bonds are really long. You're talking about 10 years before you might get your capital back. Um, they're also less jittery than other investors, too, since they have friends who can tell them whether political unrest is really as bloody as it looks on television, and they're sanguine about currency risk. I hope when you listen to these quotations, and I use them because they're so powerful, you get a sense of the predation that is part of, or dressed up as, the possibility of diaspora members helping the development process. In the case of Jamaica, there was an attempt to raise a diaspora bond. There was an awful lot of long conversation about it. The bond was aimed, uh, they, they tried to have an issue to raise about a million US dollars. Um, and they planned to launch this at the 2012 50th independence anniversary. And they chose that date specifically because they felt that would be a moment of heightened, you know, emotional attachment and patriotic um, feeling. So, you know, things were moving ahead. They were supposed to actually launch the bond in 2012 and the plans got abruptly shelved. And this is sometimes the moment when the World Bank and the IMF speak different languages. But when they tried to issue this, this um, bond, the IMF promptly told them that if they issued that bond, if they sold debt in a bond issue, it would constitute more debt for the country. And Jamaica is one of the most highly indebted countries in the world. So it very quickly was, well, we will generate more debt if we sell debt in terms of getting it as a bond issue. And that was shelved. More recently, I would say in the last year, there has been an effort 
all over again to revive the idea of a diaspora bond. And might I say that much of the inspiration behind the diaspora bond comes from the diaspora bond issues that take place in Israel. And so, you know, many people use Israel as the example that they've forever had diaspora bonds and they've been very successful in raising capital that way. Um, in the case of Jamaica, it's back on the tracks. I'm not sure, to be honest, exactly how they will tell that story. How will you issue a bond issue when the IMF said this is going to be a problem? My suspicion is that this thing called the Jamaica Economic Growth Council, and I have yet to dig up to find out who all these members are, is actually not the state. It's not a state agency. So if a private individual or t private agency wants to do this, then it doesn't count as sovereign debt. So I think that's what will happen, and the Jamaican government has conscripted the help of uh, Michael Lee Chin. I don't know how many of you know him, but if you ever go to the Royal Ontario Museum and you look at that big crystal, that's his money. He's a Canadian, Canadian Jamaican investor, worked with AIG and other insurance companies, has been quite um, successful and is seen as a guru, a financial guru. So he, along with the state of Israel, is that they're actually working on this new bond, and this new bond will be issued um, in only to, well, largely to um, pay for or in moments of disaster. And of course, the region is rife with climate disasters in, and will be for the future. So this is the way in which I think that bond will work. We have yet to see. But you know, the language of, of emotion, of attachment, all of the things incidentally that underpin what diaspora um, remittances really represent are present in the language of the bond issue. So I take here to just give you a sense of the two World Bank individuals who, well, actually she's no longer a World Bank individual. She is the, um, she is the leader of the central bank in Nigeria now, but, but these are the two people who have written the most on diaspora bonds. And so the language, again, I use quotations to make those points. This comes from their own um, research. It says diaspora bonds can tap into the same kind of emotion migrants feel when cheering on their national team in a football match. Wow. A long way from their homeland. Patriotism could in effect be the e effective tool in helping developing countries fulfill their development dreams. And they have used that language over and over. The sense of patriotism, what you could possibly do, and in the name of that connection, the thing that makes remittance happens that people would take out greater risk, become potentially more indebted, because if your bonds don't work, if you don't get paid back, then you're in the hawk for that. But all of that becomes part of the rhetoric of, of heroism in terms of development. But remittances are also generating fear. So you know, I've talked about the possibilities, but I also now want to talk about fear. I'll be very quickly here. There is a sort of fear that has emerged Governments are worried. They're worried about, you know, countries becoming too autonomous if they are reliant on remittances and they're not going to carry out all of the much needed reforms that international development agencies think they should, which are largely liberalizing ones and privatizing ones. There's a worry about if you can't actually regulate the flows of m money, to what extent might this be prey to money laundering or groups like the Hawala lending system where you can't trace where those monies come from. So there's a logic, and I want to argue that the logics of finance 
is tied really closely to the logics they're enmeshed of security. And since September 11, um, finance is really bound up with security practices. And I want to talk a little bit about them, so I'm going to move on very quickly because I can see time is going. Um, so you might wonder where coloniality came in to the story. And I want you to use this def particular definition of coloniality because I think it, it's, it, when I use that, I'm, what I'm trying to, when I use that word, I'm trying to talk to the inherited racial, political, and social hierarchical orders imposed by European colonialism that continue to prescribe and value certain peoples and societies while disenfranchising others. I think coloniality lies at the heart of the anxieties that come with financialization and the securitization responses, and, they can, and that we can see that in the way that Caribbean remittances are increasingly generating securitization concerns. And when you talk about coloniality, I'm going to say there's a long history of coloniality, especially in the relationship between the Caribbean and Canadian banks themselves. I can't go into all the details here, but all of these colors are telling you the different banks. This is um, Scotiabank, so it's just rife throughout the Caribbean from 1832 when this bank was formed. It's, its headquarters, its main operations have been in the Caribbean. And people have written about the sort of colonial control, the way in which investors' remittances, I mean, investors' um, interest rates were manipulated by this bank. I can't go into all of it now, as I won't finish. But what I do want to talk about is the way in which all of this has come together to criminalize the Caribbean. The Caribbean is viewed as a narco-trafficking zone, and that has been just primary in the way and the worry about how to regulate and manage and control remittance flows. It's also seen, and this is largely because of the role primarily of Canadian banks in helping to set up offshore tax havens, and there's a long history there which I can't go into, but increasingly this zone is seen as a zone of illegality in terms of offshore um, finance. And so much so that the Foreign Account Tax Compliant Act factor came into um, being in 2013 to increasingly pay attention to monies moving in and out of the Caribbean. So I don't know how many of you have sent money to the Caribbean, that there is an elaborate set of regulations that individual investors, and not even investors, individual people with bank accounts will have to comply with to show everything, where they live, where they've been, who their connections are, in order to let money move from one place to the next. And there are tremendous financial pen penalties for banks that get it wrong. So banks are finding themselves hit with very, very um, large penalties when the smallest of infractions happen. And yes, there are infractions in banking all the time. Those penalties are so high that many banks are making choices about whether they want to continue to have banking services in the region. Um, I will move us to just talking about this one. 2017, a Republican, um, uh, Republican representative, Mike Rogers from Alabama, brings to the United States Congress this particular bill. Thank goodness it wasn't successful, it died, it never made it to um, become a real bill, but it was called the Border Wall Funding Act of 2017. And it required that remittances 
all people sending remittance should, should pay 2% of the US dollar amount being transferred. It didn't target Indian remitters, it didn't target Chinese remitters, it didn't target any one of the big players there. It was largely all of the countries of the Caribbean and Latin America. And one has to ask why exactly would that be? And a little backstory to this is in 2016, they'd actually tried to do this before. And there's a government accounting office record that says it really wouldn't work. A, that once you started to put a bill in that one, at the time that was structured so that if you were trying to remit money, you would have to prove in the United States that you were a legal resident of the country. So you can begin to see the discourse of an anti-immigrant sentiment largely with the through the Trump um, re government really filtering through how remittances got um, manipulated. And as, as Mike Rogers himself says, the bill is simple. Anyone who sends their money to countries that benefit from our poorest borders and illegal immigration should be responsible for providing some of the funds needed to complete the wall. Still makes the question, begs the question, why the Caribbean? Certainly not a country of illegal immigrants, because for the most part, um, migration flows to the United States have dried up many years ago. There's just not a large number of people migrating. And that in terms of crossing borders, the Caribbean's already insulated. They are islands in a sea. <laughs> so there's already a border <laughs> there. You can't pass. Absolutely so. So um, you have to ask, well, why is this? And I, and I think this is where questions of coloniality make sense. That there's a way in which the Caribbean is imagined and all countries like it. Countries with racialized populations, with colonial histories, and increasingly those flows of capital, as much as we might recognize their social reproductive function, have become signals to powerful countries of a loss of control a loss of control that you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know if it's illicit, that there m needs to be much more scrutiny and surveillance of those flows of capital. So the, the consequence of that is debanking. That most, most Caribbean countries, a bank here or, or a money lender will have to use a correspondent bank that will actually have another branch in another country in order to make capital move across those borders. And s these are usually bigger banks. The Caribbean doesn't have big enough banks that would hold all the currencies, et cetera, to make that happen. So when banks decide, like Barclays, Bank of America, um, HSBC, these are some of the banks who have decided it just costs a little bit too, money, too much money to actually try to um, create or provide these correspondence services under the weight of surveillance, under the weight of penalties that are now part of the architecture of um, the AMLCFT, which is the anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism regulations. Faced with that, there are at least um, banks in at least 12 countries in the Caribbean have basically said they're not going to provide those services. And I'll tell you what that means. It means that if I live in Canada and I need to send money to my child in Jamaica or Haiti or anything for school, school, school fees or food, my money in US dollars actually can't be accepted by a bank in the Caribbean. 
because it doesn't have access through that correspondence service. So what has happened is that people ha have approached banks and been told, you know, we can't take your currency because we don't have access to correspondent banks anymore. So debanking is a form, funnily, I would say, of financial exclusion. So as much as there is a discourse of inclusion around remittances, there's also a set of practices of financial exclusion that contradict the discourses, you know, associated with financialization. And to some extent, this hits the Caribbean more than any other region, and it's partly because of its size. So some, I would say, you know, we talk about too big to fail when we talk about financial institutions being built, bailed out in a period of crisis. Well, the Caribbean is just too small to save. And in that instance, debanking really is a phenomenon that is moving ahead quite quickly, and it's really problematic to the extent that the IMF and the World Bank are worried about it, that it will slow down the movement of capital across those borders. It can potentially increase the price of moving money across borders when you don't have a correspondent bank. And it ultimately has the potential to drive it underground. <coughs> so, ooh. It's <laughs> okay. So, all right. So, where do we go from here? <laughs> this is my last slide. So, scholars argue that decoloniality requires delinking, detaching from imperial and colonial overall structures of knowledge. We need to engage new ways of thinking, we need to imagine alternative ways of being and life in general in the world. And so I think it's important uh, to do this exercise, to reveal the colonial and racial logics embedded in emerging strategies to financialize remittances and to demonstrate the consequences, never lose track of the human face for everyday lives of the financialization, securitization nexus. And without those connections, I think we succumb to discourses like financial inclusion and the suggestion that financial instruments like diaspora bonds will compensate for the trail of destruction and now disposal that small and vulnerable economies face from free market racial capitalism. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.